This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Last week was Fall Fun Drive. It's over now. But guess what? You can still donate to WFHB. Simply go to WFHB.org and press the big red donate button or give us a call. 812-323-1200. We need your help all year long, because we're on all year long. And all year long, every Thursday at 5.30 and Friday at 11.30 a.m., Big Talk. And Big Talk this week welcomes a music writer, an author, Stephen Deusner. Stephen, hi. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, the University of Texas Press, just last month, put out Stephen's first book, period. That's correct. First book. The book is Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. The Drive-By Truckers, one of those huge, not huge bands that people in the know know about. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't say that they are uh, a blockbuster band or anything like that, but they have a very large a fan base and an extremely avid fan base, but they, they've been going for about 25 years this summer, as a matter of fact, and have so many albums. I can't remember the name of the, the, how many are. I found out they have 19 studio and live albums. The range of your book is global at this point because a, a magazine uh, called Americana UK reviewed the book. I did an interview with you. And they had a little quote about this that said, this book is clearly about the truckers, but it is also about the South. What did they mean? For me, as somebody who grew up in the South, I was born and raised in in Tennessee and have family in Alabama. It was really profound for me to listen to this band and hear them sing about places I knew. And, uh, and it sounded like people I knew. And I think their larger project over these last 25 years has been documenting the South in a way that takes in all of the beauty of the South, but also all of the ugliness of the South too, and lets those things sit side by side. So it's never one thing or another. One of their songs talks about a concept they call the duality of the Southern thing. Hmm. And I think that that duality points to that pride you feel in calling this place your home, but also that shame about what's happened there and the violence and the racism that's happened there and continues to happen there and and obviously elsewhere. And so for me writing this book, it wasn't, I just didn't want to simply tell the story of a band, but I wanted to show how they depicted that place and all of that intricacy and contradiction. And, you know, I I thought that that was a way to show how art can speak to something bigger and something that's still going on in in a lot of ways. 
The book distributors have little blurbs when they're trying to describe what the books are. And on one of the major books distributors website, uh, I found this. Deusner discovers how their music shifted the way we view the modern South. What does that mean? How did we view the modern South before them? And how do we view it now? That's a very good question. And, and, and I do think that there is a shift that comes along with this band that I think is, is, you know, they're propelling it in some ways, but they're also reflecting a shift in how we think about that. And I think, you know, even just looking at the way we talk about racism these days or the ways we talk about, this is a good question and I want to make sure I address it well, because nobody's asked me that. And, and, uh, Maybe let's move along and right. we can return to that if that works. It's it's a question. It's a really good question. And it's just something that for some reason I, I haven't had to put into words. And so maybe I can finesse this uh, as sure. we move on a little more. Stephen Deusner, uh, as a freelance writer, he's written for a, a number of the big music magazines and various uh, general interest publications. He's written for Pitchfork, Uncut Salon, Paste, The Village Voice, The Los Angeles Review of Books, even. Uh, Why did you write about music? Are you a musician? I am not. One of the great tragedies of my life is I don't have any musical ability whatsoever. But I think I'm a good listener. There is something about the decision for people to express themselves by writing songs and, and writing melodies and things like that, that I really find fascinating and I've always gravitated toward music. I just find that that whole culture around it so fascinating. You know, I just started it as sort of a hobby. I stumbled into it when I lived in Memphis and just wrote album reviews on the side. And then when my wife started getting fellowships and jobs around the country, I just packed up and moved with her. And I was, I was kind of the portable husband, she calls me. Um, <laughs> And so I can do this anywhere. I can do this anywhere in the world. And I've done it in a lot of different places. And, and uh, I've even done, I, we were even living in England, which is where the roots of this book are. It's been fascinating to, to write about music in all these different places that have their own cultures and their own music scenes. Interesting you should bring up England because uh, you and your wife, she had a fellowship and you moved to Birmingham, England a few years ago. And speaking of the South, when you were telling people, hey, I'm moving to Birmingham, uh, they thought Alabama. <laughs> well, my, my mother lives in Birmingham. And so when I told her, she was like, oh, you'll be right next door. You'll be here and I can see you all the time. And I was like, oh, no this is England. And uh, she actually thought that was even better because she'd get to come visit me. (laughs) When you were in Birmingham, England, uh, the story goes that you had to walk more than a mile to get to a coffee shop. And while you were walking (laughs) that mile, you would listen to the drive-by truckers on your headphones. Is that how you became uh, obsessed with them? Or are you obsessed with them? (laughs) Well, I'm definitely obsessed with them. I was already obsessed with them when we moved over there. I've been, I first started writing about them in 2004. And so I've been obsessed with them for a a long time, but in England and making those long walks in a place that was, you know, it's somewhat familiar, 
but it's still a little bit new. And then listening to this band that reminds me of home, that reminds right. me of where I grew up. You know, my, my brain just started to sort of make notes about all the places they mentioned. And I really started to think about place in relationship to this band. And that's how the sort of book kind of sprung forth. It, it, I thought that you could write about this band through the places where they've lived and the places that they've written about. So when I got ready to sort of pitch this to a press, that's the sort of approach I use, a sort of a geographic story of, of them rather than a chronological story about them. Your wife is an art historian and uh, over there at Birmingham, England, she taught a class called Monuments and Methods. This got you to thinking about the Confederate monuments. And you found, this is interesting. I didn't even know this. This is something that you discovered. You found that the Confederate flag was never the flag of the nation or the wannabe nation called the Confederate States of America. It was some kind of unit's battle flag. It was, it was, and that was surprising to me. I mean, I know that in Southern Rock, the sort of Confederate flag is a major sort of symbol. Like when Leonard Skinner played, they would often use that as a backdrop. And when the drive-by truckers came up, and maybe this speaks to the question that you were asking earlier about how our thinking has changed about the South, they specifically did not want the Confederate flag anywhere near them. They did not want it in the album packaging or on stage or anything. In fact, Patterson Hood, uh, one of the songwriters for the band, has written uh, an op-ed in the New York Times saying that we need to get rid of this as a symbol of the South. It has such a fascinating history, though, because it, it comes from uh, a battle flag it was a square with yellow fr or gold fringe. It was never associated with the Confederacy until many years later, until the 20th century, when the KKK started up again and became experienced a resurgence in, in a lot of different places, Indiana included, and adopted the Confederate flag in a slightly adapted form. So it became a rectangle and it lost a lot of the fringe. And that's the symbol that we know today. That's the symbol that we see flying in a lot of places where it really, it really shouldn't be flying. And, and I think even, uh, even yeah. in non-South places, Indiana's full of Confederate flags. It really is. It's, it's shocking. When, when we leave Bloomington and, and get out into the country here, I see more up here than I see in Alabama when I'm, <laughs> when I'm in, in rural Alabama. <laughs> That, unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, during the Birmingham trip, we took a trip to Germany to visit my ancestral village, uh, a place called Dassenau. And we hiked uh, a long way to get there. And as we're coming down the mountain, this mountain into this, this very scenic, beautiful village, we passed by a house. It's the first house we've seen. And it is flying a Confederate flag. We've gone halfway around the world and we still see this thing. And I later found out that it's flying a Confederate flag because Nazi flags, Nazi symbols are outlawed. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. this is what they use as a substitute. And so that <laughs> should tell you 
how the world sees this flag as a symbol of hatred, as a symbol of oppression, as a symbol of keeping other people down. You know, in that article that I mentioned, you were quoted as saying, I didn't plan to write about Confederate monuments as much as I did, or about their war songs as much as I did. But you did. And again, the book is called Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. It's about the band, the Drive-By Truckers, but it's more about the South as well. So why did you write about the monuments and the, and the war songs? That's just where the material led. Once I sort of started digging into the band, especially with this idea of place, that's the stuff that just kept popping up. I mean, when I wrote the, the I wrote a chapter on Richmond, Virginia, which is one of the first markets where they really broke. It's also the home of Wes Freed, who is an incredible visual artist who does all of their album covers and tour posters. He's the artist who did the book cover. And I'm just over the moon that I have a Wes Freed on my book. And so when I started researching Richmond, obviously that's the capital of the Confederacy. So you've got this band that's trying to redefine what it means to be Southern, finding a toehold in the capital of the Confederacy. You know, I'm writing this chapter and I'm having to update it constantly because last summer, the George Floyd protests completely changed Monument Row in Richmond, where you, you suddenly had these Confederate monuments that are being removed from public spaces or graffitied or tagged with Black Lives Matter. I think it's the Lee statue there that had a picture of John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, after he passed. They projected that onto the, the statue. I found that so fascinating and, and kind of beautiful. It's like we, we keep asking, what do we do with these monuments in public spaces that represents such an ugly history. And I think that's maybe the best answer is that you just, people just get together and they take it over and they turn it into what they want or need it to be. You know, another example is in Gillsburg, Mississippi, which is where Leonard Skinner's plane went down, middle of nowhere. Truckers have written a lot about Leonard Skinner. That was the county where some of the last American slaves were held huh. in peonage. There was a woman who had grown up in slavery in that area and was finally freed in like the 1960s. She oh. and her family had no idea. They were just kind of kept away from the world and kind of passed around from different families. And uh, they didn't realize that they were in slavery. They didn't realize that this was now unlawful. What are the odds that this plane goes down right there. I, I'm slapping my forehead here. Uh, Stephen Deusner, uh, the author, the music writer, he's talking about the fact that up until the 60s, my lifetime, believe it or not, there were people who were slaves in the United States of America. What is that town again? It's Amite County or Amity County. I'm not exactly sure. It's called Gillsburg. Uh -huh. it's, it's in the Gillsburg chapter towards the end. You spoke about uh, Richmond, Virginia. Speaking of southern towns, southern cities, the drive-by truckers themselves originated in Athens, Georgia. And 
As we look into the history of Athens, Georgia, we find, well, that was the home of the B-52s, REM, widespread panic. It's been called the Liverpool of the South. So what the heck is it about Athens, Georgia? <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's a place that reminds me a lot of Bloomington, actually, where you just have a place where people can make things happen, where you can just sort of be what you want to be and trust that there are going to be at least a few people who want to watch you do that. What I can't get over is how long that's been sustained after that first explosion of the B-52s, yeah. Pylon, the Method Actors. I mean, all those amazing bands in the late 70s and early 80s then becomes Neutral Milk Hotel and the Drive-By Truckers and the Glands. And, 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 and still right now, there are just so many great bands there as well. And it's such an unusual place for that sort of music scene to pop up in the beginning but then to, to, to flourish there is remarkable. There's a great book that I quote uh, called Cool Town by a historian named uh, Grace Elizabeth Hale that takes you through all of that. And, and it's just, it's absolutely, a, it's a fascinating history. Hey, you know, there is a connection between the drive-by truckers and Bloomington. Uh, back in 2009, Booker T. Jones came out with his Potato Hole album and the drive-by truckers played on that album. And of course, Booker T. Jones from way back, Booker T. and the MGs, he went to Indiana University right here in Bloomington. Exactly. Yeah, he did. And he was commuting from Memphis. He would drive up almost once a week or so, if, if not even more. And he would do sessions at Stacks and he would drive to classes in Bloomington before, I mean, there's not a good way to get between here and there at all now, no. but even then there was even less. So he was on the road almost constantly doing double duty. You know, he talks about in his recent biography, Time is Tight, about working with the band. And there was a moment where nothing was clicking in the studio. And he thought that it was because they're such a lyric driven band and they didn't know how to play for like an instrumental song. And so he started a thing where he would take each song and he would explain to them what he was thinking when he put it together or wrote it or, or played it. Like, I think he said, you know, think of this as being at home with your family and having a big dinner and everybody's there. And so then they would go play it and it just clicked. It just clicked immediately <laughs> after that. And I thought that was such a revealing story about about him, but also about the band as well, needing yeah. that kind of specific background on a song. The third album of the Drive-By Truckers was called Southern Rock Opera. By the way, the first two albums were called Gangstability and Pizza Deliverance. So there's humor going on here. Oh, oh, there's a lot of humor. I mean, there's a lot of humor in all of their music. Now, Southern Rock Opera is the story of a fictitious band called, I think this is what it's called, Betamax Guillotine. There's also the story of Leonard Skinner. So how do they weave Leonard Skinner into this thing? It's funny, the, the Betamax Guillotine comes from an urban legend about the Skinner plane crash that says that uh, Ronnie Van Zant, the lead singer, was decapitated when a wall-mounted VCR 
flew across the cabin of the airplane and hit him and, wow. and took his head off. So yeah, that is such a, a, an incredible album that celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. They released it on September 11th, 2001, which we all know the significance of that day. Wow. Sadly. But it's the story of, it's a lot of different stories, actually. It's, it's, um, there's a lot going on with it. The second side does tell the story of Skinner coming up in Florida, working hard, getting popular, and then getting on that plane crash that kills them. And the first half tells the story of a fict- fictional band that might as well be the drive-by truckers themselves. It's, yeah. it's all set in uh, the Muscle Shoals area where uh, Patterson Hood and, and Mike Cooley grew up. Absolutely in- famous studio that's there. Yes, several actually. But it also mixes in a discussion of George Wallace, who's the former Alabama governor. Oh, yeah. And talks about his record in regards to race. And basically imagines him being welcomed by Satan in hell. So a lot going on. Now, the drive-by truckers for a few years had a female bass player, Shauna Tucker. And I find that funny because my two favorite rock and roll bass players of all time were both women. There was Carol Kay from The Wrecking Crew. And there's Tina Weymouth from The Talking Heads. And now here's Shauna Tucker, who at this time plays what is called Southern Soul with her band called Eye Candy. But she was a female bassist with the drive-by truckers. Very cool. It is. And she's an amazing bass player. She was schooled in the, by the, like, actually she learned with uh, Patterson's father, David Hood, who is bass player for the Swampers who played for everybody. You, I, if you've not heard of the Swampers, you've heard the Swampers. They played with Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett. They played with Candy State and uh, they played with everybody. And so she learned that very old style of kind of bass playing that's rooted in R&B. And so when she came into the band, she came in as she was married to Jason Isabel who is another member of the band who's now gone on to become one of the biggest songwriters out of Nashville right now. Right. She was married to him at the time. And I think a lot of people thought it was nepotism that brought her in, but then you watch her play bass and you listen to what she's doing and you know, that's far from it. And I think she really helped them recover from the loss of Jason. He left the band in 2006 or seven And the band kind of struggled a little bit to kind of figure out what it wanted to be going forward. And so she brought this element, this R&B element into their music that really reconnected them with Muscle Shoals. There's a song called Used to Be a Cop, which is one of my favorite moments for her. It's kind of a country rock, Southern rock song, but then she's laying down this really intricate bass line that sounds like chic. It sounds like oh. Bernard Edwards. Yeah. And as long as it's like this disco bass line on a country song, and it's just like, it, it's such an amazing moment. Stephen Deusner, uh, you can catch him on Twitter at, uh, at Stephen M. Deusner, 
and that Deusner is spelled D-E-U-S-N-E-R. Do you have a website? I do. It's uh, stephendeusner.com. There's no M in that one, but there is an M in my Twitter handle. So, so yeah, stephendeusner.com. He's the author of the book, uh, Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. How did it feel when you got that contract? <laughs> it felt amazing. It just felt amazing. I, I remember getting the contract. I remember when the box of the first box of books showed up and I got to see that cover. And I just did my first book signing down in Muscle Shoals during Shoals Fest weekend, which is an amazing outdoor music festival that features a lot of regional acts. And I, I'm still walking about three feet off the air <laughs> in, the, in the air. Now, can we go back to that question that so bedeviled you earlier? <laughs> and that is, how has the band changed how we look at the South? Have you thought about it? Do you have an answer? <laughs> I think so. I, I mean, I think a lot of it is dependent on the, that album, Southern Rock Opera, and introducing some ideas about how we view public figures in the South, uh, like George Wallace, like Ronnie Van Zandt, like Bear Bryant, and even more so like, uh, like Buford Pusser, who is the uh, sheriff in, a, in my hometown in the 70s, who inspired several movies and TV shows. And it's just about how we think about them and, and how we think about public figures who maybe represent certain aspects of the South that can be oppressive or, or that are ugly. I think that you see a lot of that in how we think of these monuments and these discussions about, about monuments in public spaces and, and about uh, the Confederate flag, even about gun control. The truckers have written a lot about guns and guns in Southern culture. And, and I think that that's helped shift, but also I think reflects a larger shift, even people who don't know who the band is. We're having these discussions right now and they've kind of reached a national level that, that I, I'm, I'm very happy about. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to see these, these debates kind of uh, being played out at this level right now. The book is called Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. The byline is Stephen Deusner. He's a music writer and an author, now based here in Bloomington, Indiana. He came here because of your wife. I did. I did. Um, my wife is an art historian. She teaches uh, American art and British art. And she has an excellent book as well that came out in October 2020, she beat you to it. Uh, she beat, we were having a, a, a race and she beat me. Uh, but, uh, and, and hers, it's a, it's an, it's a gorgeous book about British and American aesthetic painting and interiors. Uh, if you have any interest in the late 19th century, her book is fascinating. It deals with businessmen, collectors, the idea of network that becomes a big deal at the time, electricity. I mean, it's, it's fabulous, but I just follow her. So she came here. She got a really good job here. We've settled here and absolutely love Bloomington. It's a great place to write about music.
as he called himself earlier, the portable husband. He's <laughs> Stephen Deusner, music writer, author. Stephen, thanks for joining us on Big Talk. It's been an, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.